next met with Dr. Stephen Edge to understand how he integrates some of the key recent research data referred to by Drs. Mamanus and Hayes, I asked him to present a couple of patients from his practice, and he began with a 62-year-old woman who, like many of the patients he sees, had had a prior biopsy demonstrating infiltrating ductal carcinoma. This woman had a small palpable lump that ultimately pathologically proved to be 2.2 centimeters, but she had clinically negative nodes and has an ER positive HER2 negative cancer. And we had the typical discussion regarding this. I personally spend about 45 minutes with a patient. I take a sheaf of blank paper with me, and over the last five years, I've started outlining my discussion with them. And it usually takes four to six sides of a sheet of paper to sort of start off what is breast cancer, diagram the breast, what is invasion. There's two issues in treating breast cancers, the breast and systemic therapy. I then actually talk about systemic therapy and the risk of recurrence and staging first to try to give people the whole perspective that, you know, in addition to treating the breast, I know you've come to me as a surgeon, but you really need to hear the whole story and talk about size, lymph node status, et cetera, and how it affects therapy that because she has an ER positive cancer, she needs to receive endocrine therapy. And that chemotherapy decisions will be made based on all the factors we've talked about. And particularly if it's node negative now, I say there's this new test that can be done, which has been a real boon to us to allow us to identify the people who really don't benefit from chemo and to tell those people who need it that they are likely to get a dramatic benefit from it. And then I shift gears and talk about the breast itself. And we talk about lumpectomy versus mastectomy. And in this patient, you know, we fairly rapidly in that discussion got to the fact that she's readily treatable by lumpectomy, good cosmetic result, no difference in long-term outcome. I think parenthetically something that surgeons need to start to rethink their discussion about mastectomy and lumpectomy in two ways. And they're a little sort of the opposite ends of the pole. The first is that they need to get away from reporting to patients that local failure is higher with lumpectomy but is more readily treated after lumpectomy. Because with modern radiation and systemic therapy, local failure rates after lumpectomy with T1, T2 breast cancers are probably the same as they are with mastectomy. I mean, we take this woman with a two centimeter cancer treated by mastectomy with negative nodes. You know, any objective data that you read says two to 5% of those women will have a chest wall or nodal recurrence. And there are now many, many series of both controlled series as well as observational series of local failure rates with breast conservation, treated with whole breast radiation therapy, treated with stage-appropriate systemic therapy with local failure rates on the 2 to 3 to 4% range. So that it's not fair anymore to tell somebody that you can have lumpectomy, but you have a 12% local failure rate. The NSABP B06 study, of course, was a landmark trial. You know, I was in college at the time. It was 30 Five years ago, that study was started. 35 years before that, World War II was underway. You know, it's a historical of enormous significance, but to cite BO6 data on local recurrence now, to me, is unfair. The flip side of that is that there has been this shift towards mastectomy by many people for a variety of reasons, and I don't mean to blame Christina Applegate because she made very careful personal decisions, but this whole trend towards bilateral mastectomy seems to be temporarily related to when this actress, Christina Appigate, had breast cancer and had bilateral mastectomy. And my understanding is that she has a very strong family history and has a BRCA1 or 2 mutation. And of course, she, of course, made careful decisions for herself, but it almost seemed that that fall opened the floodgates. 
And I always remember a paper written by Steve Katz from the University of Michigan in conjunction with Monica Morrow. They've had a large series of patients that they've done interviews on from the SEER regions in Detroit and Los Angeles. And this cohort's been extensively studied. And one of the ones that really struck home with me was the study where they interviewed the doctors and the patients about this choice of breast conservation versus mastectomy. And they concluded that surgeons working at large centers were more often in conflict with their patients' desires because the surgeons in large centers were biased towards doing breast conservation when even after being well-informed, the patients really wanted mastectomy. So the vast majority of the care that I do is breast conservation for these kind of breast cancers. I remember that paper every time I'm having the discussion with a woman. What was this woman's state of mind in terms of breast conservation, and what information did she have? Well, she had very little when she came to me, but, you know, we had this discussion. I had her meet with our breast cancer education and navigator staff. She met with my nurse practitioner, and she was delighted to hear that she didn't have to have mastectomy. You know, I think most women, when presented with this, you can have a big operation or a small operation and get the same result. Most people end up choosing breast conservation. But I think you have to keep in the back of your mind that women may feel differently for a whole variety of reasons. And it's not up to me to make a value judgment on that. And I think I've practiced that way all my career. But after this paper was published, I checked myself every time I have the discussion. Now, at the time you saw her, she had only had a biopsy? Right. She'd had a core needle biopsy. Core needle biopsy, of course, now the standard of care. It's no longer appropriate. Another important point for surgeons in practice to recognize, and I almost don't need to say this anymore, but it's no longer appropriate to say that I gave the woman the choice of a needle biopsy or a surgical biopsy, and I did the surgical biopsy because she chose that. So what was the next step with this woman? She underwent her surgery, which included lymph node staging and her lumpectomy. In, until last year, we would have automatically done intraoperative evaluation of the sentinel lymph node. And should that have shown lymph node metastases, we would have automatically done a lymph node dissection. But last June, the American College of Surgeons Oncology Group Z11 trial was reported. The Z11 trial is a real interesting trial because in many ways, it was an abject failure. The study set out to recruit about 1,900 women, and all of those who participated in that study found it to be a very difficult protocol to recruit to for a number of reasons. One is, is a big operation versus small operation randomization. It was an intraoperative randomization. And it was also difficult because you were supposed to enroll the patients before they had their sentinel node biopsy. And if they were lymph node negative, they weren't even qualified for the trial. So for every 10 women that you went through the whole process and consented, one or two would end up on the trial. And, you know, that's a very frustrating proposition given the amount of time. And I think that's not saying that surgeons and medical oncologists shouldn't remain committed to the trials, but at some point, if six out of eight or uh, times you go through all the work to put somebody on a trial, they end up not being able to go on the trial. It gets frustrating. But in any event, only 800 or 900 women got put on the trial. So over the years, it's been considered a failed trial. But the data are so striking on those women who are on the trial that there is no difference in axillary recurrence. There is no difference in survival. That very careful analysis of the statistics clearly show that this study provides high-quality, level-one evidence that for women with one or two positive sentinel nodes, that axillary lymph node dissection has no impact on outcome. 
And it's not a statistical manipulation. It's not any funny business. I've heard all sorts of criticisms of that. And when you first hear it, you have those criticisms because you say the study must be underpowered. But quite frankly, the data are so striking that both excellent biostatisticians within the ACASOG as well as external biostatisticians clearly tell us that this is real. And of course, it meets the eyeball test as well. I guess the one thing I'm not sure that that study took into consideration is whether knowing the number of positive axillary nodes is something that maybe the oncologist would want to know in terms of determining the kind of treatment to use and whether Mm -hmm. you could even dissect that out. Well, I'm going to back up a little bit on that discussion because I think there's two or three lingering questions about the way the data were reported. And these are things that I said publicly at the American Society of Breast Surgeons with Armando Giuliano on the panel as well. And one of them is that they did not really present fully, in my mind, the extent of lymph node involvement among the women who were randomized on the trial. They showed us that about 35% of the women had micrometastases and that about 65% of the women had macrometastases, micrometastases being two millimeters or less. And therefore, the implication is that any woman with any macrometastasis who has one or two positive sentinel nodes met the criteria for the study and therefore meets the criteria to omit actually lymph node dissection. But what they didn't show us was a size distribution of the lymph node metastases. Remember, we talked a moment ago how the randomization could be done up front, and if the node was positive, randomize them intraoperatively. But it also allowed women to be put on the study when intraoperative evaluation of lymph node was negative and only on more formal postoperative evaluation was the lymph node found to be positive. That usually happens in the setting of women who have minimal axillary disease, even though it may be over two millimeters and therefore, quote, macrometastasis, unquote. I think the number was 75% of the women or 80% of the women who went on to the trial were randomized in that fashion. So it suggests that they all had small disease. And I think it would be nice if the ACASOG would publish the data showing the size distribution of the sentinel nodes. Because I suspect they do not have that many women with large lymph node metastases. So when I'm applying this, if I open the axilla, particularly on a heavyset woman where it's hard to define if they're clinically negative, and I find two two-centimeter nodes, I'm thinking very differently about that than the woman who has a small, obvious metastasis or a woman such as the one we're discussing, I find a node with the micrometastasis. I think those are different cancers. The former situation with the large nodes doesn't present itself that often, but when it does, I'm uncomfortable, and I'll probably still be doing the lymph node dissection in the meantime. So what happened with this woman? Well, I mean, this woman had a clinically negative node, and when we examined her axilla, we found two nodes that took up the technetium sulfur colloid, and we removed them, and they felt soft and fleshy, and, you know, we sent them off to the laboratory for primate pathology and closed the axilla. We did not do intraoperative evaluation. And what did you see on the pathology? Well, the pathologist identified one of the two nodes had a one-millimeter metastasis defined as micrometastasis. So what happened? What was the decision? Well, we told her. We said, too bad. But on the other hand, micrometastases tend to have a these people tend to have a pretty good prognosis when appropriately treated and advise her that she ought to meet with a medical oncologist, but there would be no need for her to undergo actually lymph node dissection. So what happened when she met with the oncologist? 
Well, so the question that comes up, since she has an intermediate size, ER positive, HER2 negative cancer, if she'd been node negative, in my practice now, because we've discussed this with the medical oncologist in our multidisciplinary breast center, we order the oncotype. It's done before she meets the medical oncologist. If you go back four years ago when we were first doing oncotype, the standard was, well, the surgeon shouldn't order it. It should only be done after they meet with a medical oncologist. But, you know, it takes two or three weeks to get the result back. It takes two weeks for them to see the medical oncologist. Now you're four or five weeks down the line. Why does she have to wait that long? When we know that we have standards that for these women that we order oncotype, why not just get it done and cooking for them while they're going to see the medical oncologist? So we're doing that in our practice. I would encourage surgeons listening here to have that discussion systematically and programmatically within their group rather than just burdening their medical oncologist with this. And unfortunately, because they do that outside of a programmatic decision, they will be doing it sometimes in circumstances where they may not need to, such as, for example, if they miss that the person has a HER2-positive cancer where you really shouldn't be bothering doing the oncotype. The question then comes in, should you do that on a woman who's got positive notes? And of course, all the validation studies with oncotype were done with women with negative notes, where the prognosis is somewhat better. So we still do not do it on women with positive notes, and we send them on to the medical oncologist. But many people around the country now are doing oncotype testing in people with minimal metastatic disease in one or two notes. Because what is really the significance of an observed one millimeter micromet? I mean, we know that if we do serial sectioning lymph nodes, that we will find micrometastases that we otherwise would have missed. We know that if we do serial sectioning and stain them with a cytokeratin antibody and put that in an oxidizing condition, we'll see brown in small isolated clusters or one millimeter metastases it would have missed. So what is the really biologic significance of a single micromet versus not? So many medical oncologists now across the country will do the oncotype analysis on people with limited node metastases, even though it's not been validated. There is, of course, a single retrospective analysis of a prospective trial of tamoxifen versus tamoxifen plus chemotherapy, where oncotype provides both prognostic and predictive information. So that supports this practice, but it is not codified into practice guidelines. The NCCN guidelines to date do not provide for using Oncotype DX in the setting of node-positive disease. So she did this. The Oncotype was 12, and the medical oncologist advised her to take endocrine therapy only. I'm curious, if the Oncotype had been high, obviously she probably would have gotten chemotherapy, but wouldn't it have affected your thoughts at all about axillary dissection? It would not. Any comments on the other available genomic assay, the mammoprint assay? Well, mammoprint is another genomic assay which profiles breast cancer. It was developed with a slightly different strategy for defining genes that are related to breast cancer prognosis and assesses a composite of 70 genes that are expressed in normal and breast cancer tissues. And they dichotomized the score. And the way that I've heard it explained by some of the investigators in the group was they felt that surgeons and others wanted a yes or no answer. Uh, they want a dichotomous, this person has a high risk of recurrence or this person has a lower risk of recurrence. And so they developed a dichotomous score of high versus low. And it appears to pretty well put people who are classified as high or low or seem to have a difference in prognosis. There's less good evidence that is predictive of response to chemotherapy. It is required fresh tissue, so you have to have snap-frozen tissue. 
Oncotype had trouble being accepted in the medical community initially because it was a RNA assay based on formalin fixed tissue. And of course, however quickly you get this tissue in formalin, it takes a long time for the formalin to permeate into the tissue, long time meaning hours, during which time RNA degrades. So people were quite skeptical of an RNA-based assay in formalin fixed tissue. But mammoprene, on the other hand, requires snap-frozen tissue, and most centers don't snap-freeze their tissues. So it's had a lot of trouble gaining popularity in the United States, where Oncotype has been picked up very quickly. In Europe, people are using mammoprint much more aggressively. The company is pushing mammoprint quite heavily in the United States right now. I don't know the success that they're having. Let's talk about your 38-year-old patient. Sure. This is another very common event in my practice, which is a woman whose sister had breast cancer, and there's other family history, and it led the family to go have genetic testing, and she had a mutation in BRCA1. She's already had a nephrectomy, and she's considering whether to have bilateral mastectomy or not. The common referral that I get is, I've been told because I have the mutation, I have to have a mastectomy. How do you respond? Well, I think one has to step back. First of all, the response is, okay, but you don't need to do anything tomorrow. You really want to step back and take a look at this. The chance that you're going to get breast cancer tomorrow or next week or next month that's going to be different from your being operated on tomorrow is, you know, essentially zero. Now, one has to respect that most of these women who are in such families have thought a lot about this over their life. This is not the first time that this question has come up in their mind. So one has to be very respectful of their processes. But the flip side is that many of them have never really gotten an objective, careful evaluation of the options facing them. And unfortunately, I think too many people get the knee-jerk response that if you have a mutation, you must have a mastectomy. There is conflicting evidence as to what the projections would be of long-term outcome for women who are followed with aggressive screening for breast cancer. There are theoretical models using Markov modeling where people say, well, if we take a hypothetical population of 1,000 people and X percent of them get breast cancer next year and of those, 20% of them ultimately die, but some of them have a car accident, some of them have heart attacks, and so there's 995 living at the end of the first year, and let's apply the same statistics to them year after year after year, there have been Markov modeling that has suggested that people who have bilateral mastectomy will add a number of life years by having mastectomy. But the flip side is that there is an increasing body of evidence that aggressive MRI screening in these women will detect cancers at a very early stage. Most recently, a study that was led by a group in Toronto that demonstrated clearly that in a large cohort of women who had BRCA1 or 2 mutations, that the cancers that were detected through periodic MRI screening were generally a very low stage. And they projected that, therefore, their long-term outcome would be much better than what had previously been thought. So I think that needs to be presented to an individual carefully and thoughtfully, again, recognizing that it may make sense between the hours of 6 a.m. and midnight when everybody's logical and when they're all alone between the hours of midnight and 6 a.m., it may not make sense to them. And they may ultimately choose to do mastectomy. But I think a surgeon, and I think since surgeons are listening to this today, I think a surgeon is obligated, obligated here, to help the woman step back and be sure that she's making a careful, thoughtful decision based on the data as well as on her gut. Because too many of our colleagues outside this field who are not well-versed in this equate BRCA mutation with a medical necessity 
of having bilateral mastectomy. So I think our surgeons are obligated to provide that context. And depending on the organization of their program, they're obligated to have some kind of multidisciplinary discussion with a woman. So I think a surgeon puts both the woman and, unfortunately, in our legal system, puts themselves at risk. If they just see a woman do the testing in their office, get the result, and two weeks from now do the bilateral mastectomy. And I reviewed a malpractice case, oh, 15 years ago, of a woman who had atypical hyperplasia on a biopsy. And a well-trained surgeon from an NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center, I read the deposition, told her it was just a matter of when you're going to get breast cancer because your breast cancer is 10 times the risk of the average person and the average person has a 10% risk. So you have a 100% risk of getting breast cancer, which you know you know is just nonsense. But I think surgeons need to be very careful about doing this too rapidly. And I think their obligation to their patient is to put the brakes on a little bit and to get other people involved because this is a complete life-changing, lifelong decision that it doesn't matter if she waits a month or two to make that decision and do it carefully. And she'll be happier that she did that in the long run, though she may argue with you up front. How do you approach the procedure surgically and what do you do in terms of nipple sparing? (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I have this discussion with patients. We would be willing to do nipple sparing. I've actually found a heck of a lot of the people that I talk to about this question say, I'm having prophylactic mastectomy because I want to do this and I'm going to leave two or five or 10% of my breast tissue behind. Why? And they don't want to do it. I actually don't have pickup on nipple sparing mastectomy in the prophylactic setting very often. Now, I know that other people have different experiences in their practice, but that's been my personal experience with this question. How do you approach the issue of the MR screening in people who don't want to have surgery? How often and for how long? Well, I mean, it's annually, and I guess it will have to be lifelong, though we haven't gotten that far because we haven't been doing that long, but I guess it's going to need to be lifelong, whether you'll stop it at age 65 or 75, depending on the character of their breasts. I actually don't know the answer, but for the moment, it would need to be annually. So how about your lady with 14 positive nodes? So I have a 43-year-old woman who presented with a T1C breast cancer and when we did her surgery, found a positive node. In fact, it was obvious she had multiple positive nodes. She would not have fit anybody's standard for the Z11 trial. And we did an actually lymph node dissection and found, oh my goodness, 14 positive nodes. And she has no family history of breast cancer. She had genetic testing and she was negative for BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations. And we had to do a re-excision for a margin. Interestingly, in her case, She still has DCIS at a margin, and we elected not to delay her chemotherapy for another three weeks while she had another re-excision, and she has now completed her AC Paclitaxel chemotherapy. And I saw her last week, and we had said we will do re-excision of these margins when you're done with therapy, when you're done with chemotherapy before your radiation. And she's come in and said she's decided not only does she want unilateral mastectomy, but she wants bilateral mastectomy and that she's already spoken with the plastic surgeon, and the plastic surgeon has said, well, why don't we just radiate the native breast and do everything six months later so that then I'll resect all the radiated skin. So a little bit outside the box here. First of all, it's outside the box because generally we do our surgery to negative margins before we proceed with therapy. But I think it was reasonable to break the guidelines in this situation because 
you know, she had aggressive disease and it was time to get her on chemotherapy. So the question is, the mastectomy question, and the other question is the contralateral breast. Timing of reconstruction. With mastectomy or breast conservation, she clearly gets extended field radiation therapy. It will include the supraglavicular nodes. Radiation oncologists will argue back and forth as to whether they need to treat the internal mammary nodes. And if she has mastectomy, we would most likely delay her reconstruction because of the need for radiation therapy in this quite high-risk setting. And then this question of the contralateral breast. What about the contralateral breast? What were your thoughts? Well, bilateral mastectomy with flap reconstructions, which if she has a mastectomy on the affected side, she'll be having reconstruction in the setting of radiation therapy. A fair amount of skin will be gone, and implant reconstruction is less likely to provide a good result. So she'll have a flap reconstruction. And bilateral flap reconstructions is a very big operation and a big deal. And when I asked her, why do you want the other breast removed? She said, I want to reduce my risk of recurrence. And, you know, there again is where the surgeon has to really help her take the step back because, of course, her risk of recurrence comes from the fact that she has 14 positive nodes and the breast is not a site of recurrence. The contralateral breast is not a site of recurrence. So how did she respond when you provided that input? Well, she said, well, it's just, but I want it for peace of mind and I don't want to go through this again. And in the meantime, she's now met with the radiation oncologist, and she's seriously reconsidered the question of bilateral mastectomy. And I suspect we will not be doing bilateral mastectomy. But the point is, you know, this is me. You're not me. You haven't had cancer. You know, and again, I make the analogy that it's fine to rationalize from 6 a.m. to midnight, but from midnight to 6 a.m., you're by yourself and you're not rational. And I certainly understand that. If she absolutely came down and demanded that we do a bilateral mastectomy, I eventually wouldn't stand in the way. But I think this is something where surgeons have to be careful about having the automatic knee jerk. And I am concerned that the pendulum has swung in the last three years, that people are just much more nonchalant about doing bilateral mastectomy because you get better symmetry with reconstruction, because you can avoid the cancer treatment if you get a new cancer, because it's almost you're rationalizing it. And they're forgetting that mastectomy is a major operation. I do see five or six patients a year who come in, whether I did their operation or somebody else did, who have chronic pain syndromes after mastectomy. I do see many people who are dissatisfied with their mastectomy and their reconstruction. It is not a benign operation, and it is one that does not afford, in this case, it does not afford her any real protection. The pain syndrome that you're talking about, what is it? Is it an autonomic neuropathy or what? Yeah, it probably is, and it's related to neuromas or whatever is related to cutting the various cutaneous nerves. I really don't know, but you see this from time to time. I see three or four or five people a year who have chronic pain syndromes that are going to the pain service and trying to deal with it. So it's not trivial. It's not, it doesn't happen often, but it's not trivial. So before one does a 12- or 14-hour operation where 3 or 4% of the people will lose the flap or 2% of the people will lose the flap and where 10 to 20% of the women will have a significant wound complication, I think you have to be a little careful about this knee-jerk of doing bilateral mastectomy. So that's not to mean we should put up a brick wall but you have to help people put it in context.